You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. Yep, Tommy, uh, by phone, I am here. Aaron is now at home as well. Uh, I made the decision, Tommy, that Aaron and I, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, we're, are a bit too close in studio. So Aaron's going to do all of his work from home uh, as he puts together and edits the podcast and handles all of what we handle after the uh, the actual content of the podcast has been produced. He's going to be able to do that from home, um, which means that we won't get Aaron's input during the course of the show right now. <clears throat> but what I'll do probably on days where you're not here is I'll have Aaron call in by phone, and then Aaron will be uh, a part of the show uh, that way. If you missed the show on Friday with Cooley, a lot on the Redskins. It got a lot of attention as well. Some of the things that he said about Kyle Allen and Dwayne Haskins, I'd urge you to go back and listen to Friday's show. Sorry about yesterday. Something came up. Uh, family, you know, we're all we're, we're all trying to, to get through every day, and there were some needs uh, that I had to be involved in yesterday, um, and so we took yesterday uh, off. But hope everybody... Listen, the most- the yeah. most important thing right now is home. That's the most yeah, important thing. I know, but this is not, um, you know, on a daily basis, That you know, this isn't a massive commitment, but my, you know, first commitment, I, I can't miss the radio show, so I had to miss something yesterday, and it, it ended up being the podcast. But you know what? It was better that it, that, that you're here today to sort of do the Bobby Mitchell passing together. But before we get to any of that, first of all, you know, hope everybody's healthy, well, and continues to to be so. Um, that's uh, the most important thing. And again, can't thank you enough for continuing to listen to the podcast. Um, but the last time we talked to, to Tommy, Tommy was in the hospital uh, in Frederick, Maryland, getting ready for gallbladder surgery. I, I At the very end of the show on Friday, Tommy, you had just texted me to tell me you were good, you were coming home by 3 o'clock, so I let everybody know that it went well. Um, I know that the nurses were thrilled to see you go. How did everything turn out? Are you healthy again? Everything turned out great. I mean, it it couldn't have turned out better to post-op stuff. Uh, you know, they sent me home with a painkiller, and I haven't even had to take Tylenol. Uh, I've got five little slits in my stomach uh, at different parts of my stomach, sort of like like a, a coin slot, five little coin slots, uh, where they basically pulled out, I guess, pulled out my gallbladder or sucked it out through a tube or something. How many of these things do you have? Five? Five. Hmm. And uh, one of them's a little bit bigger than the rest, where they had to do a little bit of extra work, and that's been sore but not painful mm-hmm. and certainly not intolerable by any stretch. Uh, you know, I had... Uh, that in the hospital that day, a uh, couple about two hours after surgery, they gave me spaghetti and meatballs. So, <laughs> you know, that's, my diet's been fine, uh-huh. and uh, I'm just not supposed to do any exercise or activity uh, for two weeks. But I feel great. I really, I mean, you know, Frederick Memorial Hospital, they they treated me great. They did a great job, and uh, uh, I'm. I'm you know, if this was going to happen, I'm glad it didn't happen two weeks from now as opposed to last week. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, I, look, I knew I knew it was going to turn out well. I'm curious, you know, and I know you haven't told me this in the past for some reason, but they sent you home with a painkiller and you haven't even had to take any uh, Tylenol or, or anything else. Have you taken the painkiller? No, I have not. Okay. I haven't taken anything. What did they prescribe? So, uh, Tramadol is the new painkiller of choice. Now, wow, you, you, know, you, I mean, you told me what it was. Last time you wouldn't even tell me what it was. I was like Creed really? Bratton. I was like Creed Bratton okay. going down the list. Was it codeine? Was it oxycotton? Was it morphine? Was it fentanyl? And you wouldn't... Well, that, you, must, have, that must have been because you were being obnoxious. <laughs> probably. Probably. So, so but, but look, I mean, you used to, they used to give you something different. You know, every, there's a, the, the whole oxycodone, oxycotton, opioid uh, mm-hmm. addiction... Uh, that has gripped the country. The downside of that is for people who really need painkillers, it's now more difficult to get, and doctors are more reluctant to, to give out stronger painkillers. So this is like the second time in two months I've gotten this stuff tramadol. Yeah. And the last time I had it was with the gout, and I took it <laughs> with the and gout. It, it had it had no impact. <clears throat> it had and nothing. You know. How no, is it, how really, is the gout? Well, the gout's fine. Okay. The gout, the gout's so you're back fine. to you're almost, you're problem. back to normal basically. I'm at fighting strength, baby. That's good. All right. I'm ready to go. Um, that's good. We're we're so happy. I mean, uh, people on Twitter were asking me, and I was glad to get it in, slip it into the end of the podcast that you were healthy and. Uh, um, they, they, you know, I think everybody lit up a cigar when you were gone because you're not the easiest patient to deal with. You, you've admitted that. Um, but I'm just glad you were able to, to basically walk out of there rather than having to stay longer. It just means that it went well. So that we're all happy you know, about that. I'm, I'm like a medical anomaly. And you could tell from dealing with the doctors and the nurses because, you know, there's parts of me that sound like they're falling apart. I mean, like I had gout two weeks ago, and now I'm back in the hospital with, uh, with a gallbladder, you know, surgery. I had a bronchitis during the summer. And, and, you know, individually, when you add them up, it sounds bad. But, but then when they're going through, when I'm in the hospital, and they're running all the tests, all the blood work, everything they can, and everything turns out great, and they're saying, "What's wrong with you?" Yeah. Well, That's Tommy. What one nurse said, "Tommy, what what makes you so medically complex is your medical simplicity." I don't. Did you <laughs> did you not explain that to him? <laughs> I, I I I guess I forgot. What, you know, when they were like, they're, I told you before, and they're listening to my lungs. Every time they listen to my lungs, <laughs> they say how how much how yeah. great my breathing is. You did tell me I, that. I, I, and, uh, you know, my blood pressure was, was on point every time. My temperature was 97, 98. You know, my cholesterol, my cholesterol is like 140. Mm. You are, you know? I mean, don't let the actual uh, age and, and condition of, of your physical condition uh, from afar fool people. You are in phenomenal medical shape. You're a healthy man. Well, well, let's not go crazy. It's just there's just some parts of me that just don't make sense. You know, I mean, uh, they always like say your me, legs. You're, 
Yeah, yeah, like like, like a midget. Yeah, the the legs of a midget, basically? Yes. Basically, Tommy's got very short legs, long torso, short legs. My, I'm five ten. My wife is five three, and her legs are the same length as mine. <laughs> so, so that shows you what I'm dealing with. And like, here's what they always say to me: they always say you're diabetic, right? And I say, no, I'm not. And and they look at me like I'm lying to them. So it's 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 always interesting when when they when they get a look at me. But again. If you were to follow my my track record over the last six months, you would think I'm at death's door. Well, so it's, uh, who knows what's going on? What's always, you know, we'll move on to to, to Bobby Mitchell here, um, who's who passed away um, over the weekend. Um, but uh, you, the, the 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 thing that's worried me about you over the years more than anything else isn't gout it's not you know gallbladder it's not you know knee replacement or any of those things it's all the bronchial stuff that you've had the respiratory stuff that's the stuff that i want you you know you you need to to get out of that cycle every winter especially well my my, my lungs are good baby. all right there we I'll go i'll be glad to I'm not. I'm not worried about you. Um, let's let's get to um, several things today, and let's start with Bobby Mitchell because I didn't do a show yesterday, and I I talked about him for you know a while. You know, he was one of, and I know you had a chance to have conversations with him as well. Just one of the nicest men. Um, he was always so kind and so helpful over the years. You know, when we were a part of the station that the Redskins, that Snyder owned, and we were in a lot of different places where sometimes he was. And, and you know, even though he hasn't been with the organization since 2003, there was, there was his golf tournament, you know, every year. I've had him on the show. He's always been such a nice man. But what an incredible life. I'll, I'll let you go first. There's something I actually really want to bring up with you if you don't get to it, because I think you remember this sort of iconic photo that he's a part of. But um, give me your thoughts on Bobby Mitchell. Well, I mean, he was, the, you know, in a lot of these situations, he was the Redskins' Jackie Robinson. Yes. I mean, the, the guy who, although he was one of four black players, uh, that opened the season for the Redskins that 62 season. He was the highest profile uh, black player for them. And uh, I wrote in a column that George Preston Marshall, in a bizarre way, his two greatest personnel decisions were drafting uh, Sammy Baugh, number one, uh, when the Redskins came to town in 37, and then trading Ernie Davis, the Heisman Trophy winner in 1962, who the Redskins had drafted to Cleveland for Bobby Mitchell. Right. We all know the story about Ernie Davis. He wound up with leukemia, died, and never played a down in the NFL. While Bobby Mitchell, uh, the Redskins had won two games in the previous two years. They were like 221 and 3 in 60 and 61. They won five games. In '62, and that was pretty pretty much because of the arrival of Bobby Mitchell. I mean, you know, it's rare that players are worth that many games. But what Bobby Mitchell brought to the offense with at then, I think it was Norm Snead at quarterback. It was yes, yeah, really was was tremendously impactful. 
And the off the field was even more impactful because he had to, like a lot of men, put in those Jackie Robinson kind of situations. He had to endure a lot of racism, a lot of pressure, and he couldn't, he, he chose not to lash out about it. He chose to be tolerant of it and to be a role model, which he told me he was always thinking of, of young black kids when he was doing that, when he would just, you know, it, when he wouldn't lash out at the stuff that he would get. And he did an interview with me uh, for my book, Hail Victory. And I just want, if I can, can I go over some of the comments that he made? Yeah, please. He said, uh, this is all quotes. When I went to a kickoff luncheon there, when he first got there, everybody stood up and I thought the Redskins band was going to play the national anthem. Then I heard, I wish I was in the land of cotton. My God. But in the black community, I was the shining light, the player they had waited for all those years. I couldn't make any mistakes on the field. I had to be perfect every game. I had upset the apple cart, you see, when all I wanted to be was a great football player. I wasn't accepted by a lot of the white guys on the team. This is really hard, hard stuff here. The fans would yell, run, and then he used the N-word, run. I was spat on at Duke Siebert's restaurant. I wanted to punch somebody. I found out quickly that how I handled myself made a world of difference. A lot of bad things happened to me, but as long as the black kids saw me stay within myself and not lash out, they would stay within themselves and not lash out as well. I wish I could have played one day without any problems. I went to the stadium with a trunk on my back. It never ended. And when you've, got, when you've played like that and still make all pro, I'm proud of that. So, I mean, he had it really rough, and you never... And for years, you never heard, uh, you know, Bobby Mitchell basically, you know, give back what he took. And uh, he was better than the he was a better hero than the Redskins deserved. Wow, you know, um, I talked yesterday on the show about you know and played some of the sound from Jim Brown in an interview he did with James Brown a few years back where. In talking about Bobby Mitchell, the two of them played together in Cleveland. They were backfield together in Cleveland. He had said that Bobby Mitchell had to face things in in Washington that you know none of us had to face. You know, a lot of people uh, out there don't know, um, and and many of you do. But in 1962, this city, you know, was a completely different city. It was very much a a sleepy Southern city. I know that seems sort of impossible to think of now um, because it's big and it's sprawling and it has more of a Northeast personality than it does anything else. But in 1962, and I just, I know this because I wasn't alive for it, but, you know, my father's told me over the years what DC was, was like, you know, back then. He grew up in this city and he said it was really, it was a racially segregated city. It was very Southern in personality. It was obviously, you know, below the Mason-Dixon line. Technically, it was the South, but it had a, it had a Southern sort of personality and mentality, and it was uncomfortable. And, and um, you know, it had an owner of its football team in George Preston Marshall who was an avowed racist. He was, he was not quiet about it. He was... 
openly racist and said about bringing uh, uh, and integrating the Redskins, and they were the last team to integrate in the NFL in 1962 with the arrival of Bobby Mitchell. He said, my fan base, it, you know, it, it will hurt my business. My fan base won't accept it. But he got pressure, Tommy, as you know. He got pressure from the president, John F. Kennedy. He got pr- uh, pressure from, at the time, um, the uh, Department of Interior Secretary, Stuart Udall, who basically issued an ultimatum to, to Marshall. The this, this stadium was built on land owned still to this day by the Department of Interior. It is a federal government you know, property. Um, we know that, and we've been through these conversations when we've talked about the stadium before. And they essentially issued him an ultimatum that if he didn't sign a black player prior to the start of the 62 season, they were going to revoke the Redskins' lease on D.C. Stadium, which had just opened the year before. You know, it it eventually became RFK Stadium. And so he drafted Ernie Davis. Now, somebody asked me, and it was a really good question, and I didn't mention this the other day, um, that Ernie Davis was drafted um, in December. Back then, the draft was after the college season started and the NFL season was still going on. I mean, think about that, right? The wow. Ernie Davis was drafted number one overall in the 1962 NFL draft, which took place on December 4th, 1961. All right, the Redskins took Ernie Davis out of Syracuse. Ernie Davis, by the way, didn't want to come to Washington to play. Um, and, you know, in part sort of forced the trade, which brought Bobby Mitchell and, and others here, uh, Leroy Jackson uh, included. And um, Ernie Davis went to Cleveland, and as you mentioned, he had leukemia. He never played it down. A lot of people thought that Ernie Davis, and, and maybe you remember this. I don't know if you do or not. Uh, a lot of people sort of compared Ernie Davis to Jim Brown in terms of running style, where Bobby was much more of sort of a halfback flanker, you know, pass catcher, fast. Jim Brown, as we know, was a combination of all of those things, but really more of a fullback. But I, I, I you know, I, I watch. It's interesting you say that because one of the things I watched yesterday was a football life of Jim Brown, and he said that very thing about Ernie Davis. How you know Bobby Mitchell complimented Jim Brown's uh, you know skills as part of the backfield. He was like a complimentary figure, whereas Ernie Davis would have been a repetitive right uh, type of figure. So Jim Brown did actually point that out that uh, Bobby Mitchell was probably a better fit for their offense with with Jim Brown in it than than Ernie Davis would have been. That's so funny because that you watched a football life yesterday of Jim Brown on Sunday before the news came out that Bobby Mitchell had passed away. I watched a football life, Paul Brown. And you know, you have said to me many times before, and it's not that I didn't know this. I hadn't seen this particular, a football life episode of Paul Brown, but you've said many times he's considered to be, you know, he's one of the greats, if not the greatest of all time. Bill Belichick thinks he is the greatest coach of all time. And in that episode on Paul Brown, there are several Bobby Mitchell, you know, appearances talking about Paul Brown and playing for Paul Brown. And then it was literally an hour after that, that, ended, you know, I got the news that Bobby Mitchell, you know, the the news hit that Bobby Mitchell had passed away, but you know, the trade for Ernie Davis was made by Paul Brown without the knowledge of then owner 
Art Modell. Modell and Brown didn't like each other at all. Modell was very much a hands-on owner. Paul Brown had built, you know, essentially a dynasty, you know, in Cleveland with the Browns. And Art Modell didn't want that trade. It had already been made. Paul Brown thought that the combination of Ernie Davis and Jim Brown, basically two Jim Browns in the same backfield, was going to equal Horning and Taylor is the way he described it in that uh, particular Football Life episode. He said, you know, Green Bay had, had proven that you needed two of them with Horning and Taylor, and so that was really the move for us. Um, but by the way, Tommy, Paul Brown, wow, what a career. What an innovator. At the end of his, at the end of his career, he basically starts an expansion franchise and turns them into winners. Yeah. The Cincinnati Bengals. Yes, he turned Cincinnati. I mean, that's at the end of his career. Yeah, no, but, you I know, mean, yeah, he... with with by the way, revenge in mind from the jump. He yes. hated Art Modell. He hated Cleveland cutting ties with uh, with Paul Brown. He was out of football for a few years. Came back in when Cincinnati became an expansion team. Basically, copied the helmets, the uniform colors, the whole thing. He was creating the Cleveland Browns in Cincinnati, and he did win in Cincinnati as a coach. Not a Super Bowl, but they got to the playoffs a couple times. He got to the playoffs uh, uh, in in three years. He took an expansion team to the playoffs, which, by the way, seemed like an impossible feat in future years for expansion teams. And then Jacksonville and Carolina pretty much blew all of that uh, out of 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 existence because in their second year they were in the championship games if you recall back in 96 or 97 whatever year that was but Paul Brown was such an innovator and Bobby Mitch his players loved him you know he was he was really you know the he didn't care what color you were if you could play and Cleveland was considered such a progressive team back then in sports really yes Marion Motley you know Many, many people give Paul Brown the credit for integrating professional sports with Marion Motley because actually his debut came a year before Jackie Robinson's debut. It's just that football wasn't nearly as popular. You know, I mean, look, Jim Brown is, is great to watch, great the highlights of Jim Brown, but the Marion Motley highlights are just unbelievable to watch that guy run over people. I mean, it's really, I love watching Marion Motley uh, videos. Yeah. Um, back to uh, – so, so anyway, that, it's funny that you watched the, the Jim Brown thing because the Paul, the Paul Brown thing was really good. Um, you know, a couple things. First of all, you know, Bobby Mitchell, the player, like I knew that he was really good. I don't remember Bobby Mitchell um, at all. I remember hearing stories about Bobby Mitchell, about my father telling me stories about Sonny Jurgensen with Bobby Mitchell and Charlie Taylor and Jerry Smith as pass catchers. He, the numbers he put up, though, as a professional football player um, during the '60s with the Redskins, in particular, and you're right that the two biggest, the most productive years for uh, Bobby Mitchell in Washington were with Norm Snead as quarterback. In '62, he had 1,384 pass reps, reception yards, which is incredible. Like those are, you know, those are 21st century numbers. Yes. And then he yes. had in 1963 1,436 yards in pass catching yards, 69 catches. They only played 14 games back then. He also had in in those in that two year span 18 
touchdowns. And then in 64, you know, Charlie Taylor was then around for the Redskins in the 64 season, and his numbers went back a little bit, but they were prolific, the two of them together, you know, and eventually with Jerry Smith uh, as well. They were just, the Redskins offensively in the 60s were one of the most exciting teams in pro football offensively. Yes. Yes, yes, they were. Uh, And, you know, he went into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1983, the same year that Sonny did. They went in in the same year, him and Bobby Mitchell. Yeah, and you know it was it probably a little bit you know too long. Actually, it's it's remarkable that Sonny wasn't a first ballot Hall of Famer because '74 was his last year. I'm surprised he didn't go in in '79. And it took Bobby Mitchell 14 years to get in um, to the Hall of Fame. Bobby Mitchell retired right before the '69 season when Lombardi arrived. Right, and at that point he became a part of the organization as a scout. And as as a future assistant general manager, but was passed over many times um, as a uh, as a general manager candidate. You know, the first time really for Bobby Bethard in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah. You know, the Redskins obviously made a great choice in Bethard. He felt a little bit of the sting with that one. Then Casserly took over. He really thought that he should have been considered multiple times, um, including during the Dan Snyder era. But, Tommy, you you remember this, and it was sort of the final insult for Bobby Mitchell. Um, and it came uh, during the 2003 Steve Spurrier season. He was still a member of the organization, still had a position in the organization. And um, the Redskins gave out gave – out his jersey number to Leonard Stevens, a tight end. Bobby Mitchell's number 49 had been an untouchable. We know that most of you know the Redskins have one officially retired jersey at Sammy Baugh's. And then they've got a, a list of untouchables, one of which was Bobby Mitchell's number 49 forever. Spurrier came in, and remember, Spurrier was clueless. And by the way, Dan Snyder was clueless as well. You know, as yeah. he still is. You know, Spurrier gave number seven to Danny Werfel in training camp, gave number nine to Shane Matthews, and there was outrage and pushback. And so he he pushed back and he, you know, reissued different numbers to both of those players. But he issued number forty nine to a tight end, Leonard Stevens, and Leonard Stevens wore that number. And and that was the last you know, Bobby Mitchell says that was essentially the last straw. You know, he was deeply hurt when Jack Kent Cook passed him over a few times as general manager. Um, and then Spurrier's decision to issue the number 49 uniform number, nobody picking up on it, even though there was backlash, that that was it. And he retired at the end of that 2003 season. Yeah. Yeah, he never felt like he got – he never felt like he got the respect he thought he deserved, that he thought he had earned. And, look. I've, I've, I've always I've been saying for years, and as as the right thing for on this is a two track thing. It's the right thing to do, and for Dan Snyder, it would have been smart business. One of the first things that Snyder should have done at FedEx Field or Jack Ken Cook Stadium then when he took it over uh, was to build a statue to Bobby Mitchell yeah. outside the stadium, and here's why. From a pragmatic point of view, you're inheriting a franchise that has a racist history. You're inheriting a franchise that is the target of people 
who think your name is racist. What, why not at least make this gesture of saying, we recognize uh, the, the past and, and we're, we're ashamed of it, and one of the things we want to do to, to basically recognize the people who helped change us is put, put up a statue to Bobby Mitchell entering the stadium. It would have been a small, uh, it would have been a small public relations gesture, but it would have been something to have built on, to have started off saying, you know, the red, this franchise is not a racist franchise. We recognize uh, the importance of tolerance and embracing everybody, and we're going to start it by by recognizing our Jackie Robinson, Bobby Mitchell. Uh, how how how. It's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, I, I mean... mean I, again, it's the right thing to do, but the public relations hit for Snyder would have been great. I um, I don't disagree with you. I don't think it's too late to do that. I don't think it is either, except uh, it's too late for Snyder to do it. It's still the right thing to do. But in terms of a PR thing, I mean, look, I mean, anything Snyder does is going to be met, rightfully so, right. with cynicism. You know, it's just the way it is now. But back then, he was the belt buckle boy who was the Redskins fan. You know, this was before he, he turned. We turned out to be, well, you know, such a force of destruction. Yeah. Um, last thing I wanted to, to mention. Um, to me, this is an iconic photo. Maybe you'll think otherwise, but I, I have seen this photo so many times during my life, and it's always been in association with a Muhammad Ali story. And it came in 1967, June 4th, 1967. This photo was taken in Cleveland where Jim Brown gathered a bunch of the most famous black athletes of the day together for a summit in support of Muhammad Ali. Ali was at that point, you know, facing three years banished from from boxing, had his title stripped from him. Um, he for the the charges of of basically draft dodging, um, his refusal to serve in in the army for for Vietnam. And Jim Brown put together a group of people, and there's this photo that I've seen many times during the course of my life. It's Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali. And Lou Alcindor later would become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Russell. And then there are a group of about seven or eight, nine guys behind them, one of which is Bobby Mitchell. Um, The others included um, guys that you'll remember that I don't necessarily remember all of the names. Carl Stokes, Walter Beach, Sid Williams, Curtis McClinton, Willie Davis, of course I remember, Jim Shorter, and John Wooten. All came together. And, Tommy, I found this story that was written by Jonathan Eig on the Undefeated, from the Undefeated a few years back about this particular um, get-together. Bobby Mitchell was an activist, okay? He, he always was. <clears throat> but this was so interesting. If do you, know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Am I, uh, uh, Absolutely. No, no, I'm, I'm on board. I, I mean, it, it, it's one of the great photos so, I mean, of, of, of that time. Did you know, and at least, I, like I read the story in, from 2017 in The Undefeated. So Bob Arum was a big part of this meeting. Bob Arum tried to persuade Ali to accept a deal 
um, where Ali would agree to perform boxing exhibitions for U.S. troops, and the draft dodging charges would be dropped, and he would, you know, for a, pr- a period of time, would do this, and then would, you know, not lose his titles and would be able to go back to boxing. Ali didn't want to do that. He wanted to take the 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 ultimate stand, which was giving up really what turned out to be maybe three prime years of his career. All of the people that were asked to this meeting, not all of them were basically totally supportive of Ali's position. Willie Davis in particular, and I'm looking for the line in the story here because I had it yesterday and I need to find it again. Here it is. Willie Davis said, my first reaction was that what Ali was doing was unpatriotic. Um, referring to Ali's anti-war stance. Davis was one of three men in the room who confirmed Aram's version of the story about Aram trying to get him to actually enter the army to do boxing exhibitions, which several in the room actually supported, which I, I, I found to be interesting, but Ali and, and others were, were not having it. They were, he was going to take the ultimate stand, which he did, and as we know, in 1971, it was overturned by the Supreme Court, and it led to, you know, a fight against Jerry Quarry first, right, Tommy, in Atlanta, right. and then, and then, you know, what most people think is the greatest sporting event of the 20th century, Ali Frazier won at the Garden in 1971. Um, yeah, Bob, Ar- Bob Aram. People don't know this about Aram. That's went in the early stages of his career in boxing. Bob Aram worked for Bobby Kennedy in the Justice Department. In the early '60s, hmm. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Bob, Bob Aram worked worked for the Justice Department uh, as one of the things uh, in, in a remarkable career. And and Ali, Ali was a conscientious objector. You see that that was his status. Yes. And uh, and that was re- a based on his religion. Thing. Yeah. Uh, a relatively new thing. What was it? A new objector. thing? Did you get any of that in previous wars? Well, I mean, I, I tell you what, I think it was a new thing for a lot of people. I'm sure they probably got it in World War II. You know, I'm sure they probably got it in the Korea War. But I think most people, like, I'm sure Willie Davis had probably never heard of a conscientious objector right. when he was dealing with it. You know, I mean, basically, you, you had to, I mean, he could, Ali all along could have done the ex- exhibitions, the Joe Lewis tour. Uh, he, he could have done that from day one if he had wanted to and not dealt with any of this, but that was not, that was not the statement he was making. I'm very familiar with conscientious objectors because I had uh, some, a situation with the Baltimore Sun when I worked as a news reporter. Yeah. And your, and your draft board, your local draft board, which was one of the most powerful organizations in, in America at the time, you know, each, each, like each city or county had a local draft board that decided if you went or if you didn't go to war. And it was a remarkable amount of power. And, there, and in Southern Maryland, there was a congressman named Roy Dyson who was a, a real hawk, a real defense hawk, a war hawk. And uh, the Washington Post uh, came out with a story that revealed that he had been he had been given conscientious objector status during the Vietnam War, and uh, by the local draft board there, 
and because of his father was so influential. And so, you know, I, I was working for the, for the Baltimore Sun then on the state staff, and we all got reamed out because the Post beat us on this story. So we had to follow it up. So I had to go down with another reporter to Southern Maryland and find a Mennonite who had been denied conscientious objector status by the draft board there. Any Mennonite. You know, because a Mennonite, you would think, would have a legitimate reason to file well, conscientious objector were, status. Were you going down looking for just any Mennonite, or any, was there somebody any, that you knew you were going yeah. down there? I had to go find a needle in a haystack. I had to go find a Mennonite who just happened to be denied conscientious objector status during the Vietnam War. Did and you? I, I'm walking up and down driveways and farms, and after the second day, damned if I didn't, I found the needle in the haystack. I found a guy who, who, who the local draft board did not give conscientious objector status to, even though he had a far better case than the former Congress. Really? Uh, yeah. So it, 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 this was, this was and Houston, you know, for, for Ali, apparently, I guess, the, 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 I don't know if it was the Louisville draft board uh, that had the power. I guess it was the Louisville draft board that, had the, that could have had the power to do grant him that, but they didn't. They actually upgraded his draft status to make him eligible for the draft. So somebody should write a book about draft boards. Well, they they were. Go ahead. A a conscientious objector is religion the only grounds in which to conscientious object? I I don't want to. Can you just be a pacifist and be considered a conscientious objector? I'm going to say I think you can just be a pacifist. Uh, I worked when I got out of high school. I worked for two years before I went to college in a hospital up in the Poconos. And I worked next to a guy who was a conscientious objector. And he wasn't particularly religious, trust me. I had a lot of nights out with this guy. Uh, we, we shared the same religion when it came to nightlife. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but uh, because he did file for conscientious objector status and was granted, he had been a radio broadcaster but he couldn't stay in his job. Mm-hmm. He had to then go work in something that was considered public service to make up the two years that he would have served in the, in the Army. So he had to go take a job at a local hospital, uh, which was considered a public service job at, at the time. So he worked at the hospital with me, had to give up his radio broadcasting job. It was, it was a tricky, unusual business at the time there. Strange times, the Vietnam War. Very strange times. It's time. pretty wild that you they just sent you down to southern Maryland. Do you remember what town it was, you were in? No, near Leonardtown. Near Leonardtown. near Leonardtown. Yeah, I remember Leonardtown. Um, uh, uh, the only reason I remember Leonardtown is there was a summer camp there. It was a Catholic summer camp that my sister went to every year, I think. Um yeah, and it was because we got beat on this on the story. Yeah. So when you get beat, well, was the story you that you wrote about this was it was it a good one? Yeah, it was. It was a pretty good comeback. You know. And when I mean, you found was, it, when you found this guy, like uh, how what, which war was he denied? Vietnam War. It was during Vietnam. Um, yeah. 
I, the, the whole, I, I'm, you know what? We have a lot of time on our hands these days. I'm going to go yeah. read about the conscientious objector stuff because I, 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 there are many religions, especially in that category, and maybe I'm not in the right category here. I will grant you that I don't know if Mennonites and Quakers and, you know, or, and, um, you know, other sort of similar religions are the same thing or not. Are, 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 do you know anything about it or not? Or am I just way off base here? I'm, pr- I'm sure probably that day I knew everything about it. Yeah. I don't remember any of it. Um. Yeah, I mean, like the uh, the, uh, the to me, like the, the I mean, this is going to sound so simple, and I understand that. And I just when I think of Mennonites, I think of Quakers, Amish. That I'm sure there are differences, but they all sort of believe in one thing when it comes to you know war. They're all pacifists. I'm pretty sure they are. I'm sure that there there are different things that they that each group belie- b- believes in, but I'm pretty sure that that's like the group, and there are probably others as well that all are sort of pacifists, and they've all always been sort of granted conscientious objector status. I could be wrong about that too. I don't know. I'm just talking out of my ass. Um, well, you know what? What? That's all. That's all we're doing these days. Is talking <laughs> out of our ass. Yeah. All right. Um, Listen to me mornings on 980, the Team 980. The bracket concluded last night with the championship game. Joe Gibbs, Tommy, did beat Alex Ovechkin in the final. Gibbs got 60. Which I predicted, by the way. So did I. We both had the same final and the same uh, prediction. 60% of the vote went to Gibbs. 40% of the vote went to Ovechkin. Um, And, you know, that, that seems... Anybody that knows D.C. sports, whether it's because you're from here or you were from here and you live somewhere, you, no one's going to argue with Gibbs against Ovechkin in the final. As the two no. greatest you know, sports executives players, right? that's the, where the list came from in D.C. sports history. Nobody's going to have a problem with Gibbs winning it. I would have been surprised if he didn't. And I would have been surprised if Ovechkin hadn't been in the final. Those are the two right now. But it does speak to the change the impact that Ovechkin has had. No doubt. Because there was, there was a time when, when we were in this business where a hockey player wanted to have made the, the, the Elite Eight. Well, Tommy, you know? before he won the Stanley Cup a few years ago, I'm not sure that he gets to the final. That etched his, Probably not. That etched his legend in stone. You know, it was yeah. such a great story, first of all. Sports story for almost anybody. Um, but if you, if you go back four or five years, I mean, he probably didn't even make it to the semifinals. You know, them winning the cup was a bit of a game changer. Now, it still didn't make them the number one most popular team in town. You know, we, we've had these conversations before. We don't need to have them. But it certainly elevated, the, you know, his status and, and the cap status um, by winning uh, the whole thing. Um, couple of things that we want to get to today. Number one is that Major League Baseball basically says that they want to be the first to get back. And I read through the entire story that Jeff Passan, I guess, was the the, uh, guy from ESPN that broke the story, that they believe that there's a way that they can play in May in Phoenix, in the Phoenix metropolitan area, where you've got not only Chase Field, but you also have 10 different spring training facilities. They would basically isolate you know, these players into hotels, 
um, and they would live there in isolation, and they would play games with no fans. They would need testing. Testing's a big part of this thing to have enough testing so that they can test to make sure that players aren't testing positive. Um, I don't know, man. You know, I apparently a major health uh, a person. Um, it, it's it was essentially a high-ranking federal public health official. You know, actually lent some you know, some credence to this by saying that the, the, he thought that the league could safely operate in this sort of uh, environment, you know, playing all 30 teams in one metropolitan area, you know, all dedicated to, you know, a few fields with no fans and being isolated. By the way, isolated from their families, let's not forget, for months to finish the season. What do you make of this? You think there's any way they pull this off? I think this is garbage. I think it's ridiculous. I think, I think in some ways it's just a way to get baseball uh, out, out in, into the open again uh, in the conversation. This is absurd. One thing, and look, you know uh, this is not my M.O., but in these days, given this administration, a high-ranking federal health official does not create a lot of confidence for me. Yeah. Okay? Uh, I think there's so many things that can go wrong with this. You have to get all the players on board. What if a few players balk and say, I'm not putting myself at risk. I'm going home. You're going to punish them? You're going to punish the players who decide, even if their union says, yeah, we'll go along with it? You're going to punish those players? All the support staff involved? Uh, and Arizona in June, July? Only Chase Field has a, has, has a roof. <laughs> yeah, forgot about that. About how it's hot. It's 115 yeah. degrees. That's you know what that yeah. is the best point made. I totally didn't even consider that. About now, Tommy, it's a dry heat. It's a dry yeah. heat in yeah. Phoenix. It'll be a dry heat <clears throat> with dead ball players on yeah. the field. I mean, so they're they're not going to pull this off. This is absurd. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not going to happen. You know, there's so many there's so many problems with all of this. You know, the president over the weekend came out and said the NFL is going to be ready to go in September. In the meantime, the chief medical uh, you know person in the NFL, his name's Dr. Alan Sills, essentially said that you know it's going to be really hard to play a professional sport if people continue to test positive for coronavirus and there's no treatment, no vaccine. Because once somebody tests positive, that means everybody near that person, in contact with that person, you know, uh, most notably an entire team, is going to have to quarantine. And so, yes. you know, the, and it, you can sort of do the 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 logical. Uh, math here, and somebody's going to test positive, just like somebody's going to test positive in Arizona. And, you know, you may have young, healthy ball players, but you got old managers, you got old umpires, you got families you got, at home. You got, you got TV technicians, you have broadcast technicians, right? you have stadium workers who are going to go home. Are you going to isolate all these low-level stadium workers who cut the grass? Are you going to put them up in hotels, too? For months? Yeah, I don't see it. I, I don't see, I mean, right now until, I think we may have talked about this Friday, um, but for you know, being repetitive here, until there is, you know, a therapeutic treatment meds that basically, um, you know, it would be so uplifting to get it to, that basically keep people from dying for the most part, 
You know, um, until we get that news, you know, even as this thing levels off and maybe even dies out to a certain degree over the summer, it's not going to completely die out. And everybody knows what's lurking in the fall and winter. I'm not trying to be a pessimist here because I want sports and I'm, and I'm optimistic that they'll come up with, you know, the, the treatment piece of this. Cause once you come up with the treatment piece, you know, whether it's this hydra, you know, hydroxychloroquine or whatever, and I don't want to get into all of that with the antibiotic, whatever it is, whenever you come up with a real legitimate treatment that keeps people from dying when they get sick after having this, and you come up with enough testing and you come up with the antibodies to, 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 to you know, uh, test to show whether or not you've had it before and whether or not you're immune to it. But once we get a treatment that stops people and takes the, the angst out of dealing with the day-to-day thinking of, you know, if I get this, I could die from it, you know? And even though the odds are stacked against it, it doesn't matter. Right now, there's a big unknown and there's a big fear. You get the meds to treat people who are seriously ill. It's a whole new ball game. It's a whole new world. I don't think that you can play large gathering sporting events you know, uh, practically speaking, until you have that. Because if you don't have that, then once somebody tests positive, that whole team shut down. And the team they played the day before is shut down. And the team that team played the day before is shut down. It just doesn't seem logical that they could pull it off. I agree. And it's not being, Kevin, it's not being pessimistic, okay? It's basically not being an ostrich. And we got in this situation, in, in, in part, in terms of the of the seriousness of it, is because people were, were not willing to uh, consider uh, the options, you know, the, the negative options. I mean, that's part of how we wound up where we are. So I don't think it's pessimistic to to uh, to factor in worst case scenarios. I don't think that's pessimistic at all. Well, you know. It's not even like the worst case scenario. You you have a president that said the NFL is going to be back in September. Well, the NFL is only going to be back in September if testing positive for the coronavirus isn't a big deal, right? I mean, right. that's putting it as simple as you can. You got to get to the point where testing for the coronavirus isn't that big of a deal. It's like testing for the flu, positive for the flu. Until we get to that point. You know, it's going to be, you know, I, like I, I, I'm a little bit confused by some of the stuff. Like I was at Target yesterday, you know, uh, th- things aren't getting to, like you can order, uh, you know, from Amazon, you can order a lot of this stuff. It doesn't mean it's coming. And we, we needed some shit. We needed a, a bunch of stuff, including some, you know, uh, over the counter, uh, medications, etc. And so I went out to Target in Rockville place was pretty crowded. I, I wore a mask. I walked around the store. I got stuff. I got what we needed. Then I went to Whole Foods on the way back. Had a mask. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering as I'm doing this, it's okay for retail supermarkets to be open and pharmacies and drugstores and, you know, obviously restaurants are just doing curbside, but some of them are doing carryout. Home Depot's open, you know, and I'm wondering what the difference between that and going to work in an environment where you socially distance in a, in a, in a work environment with a lot fewer people. I don't know what the difference is. Uh, you know, like, like I said before, there were two stages to this. And I think if you were paying attention, 
you could get a handle on what was coming. But once it got here, I think everybody's just guessing now. I don't think anybody can really get a handle on what life is going to be like three months from now or, 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 or four months from now uh, at, at, at this point. I mean, it's all guesswork. But on the other hand, maybe I'll see you in church on Sunday for Easter. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, if you bought that hook, line, and sinker when it came out, I can't help you. Um, that was obvious. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, anyway, so so here here's another thing, just sort of um, a natural segue, kind of. I did this on the radio show this morning, and I'm curious, and you guys can tweet Tommy, tweet me, at Kevin Sheehan, D.C., at Tom Lavero on Twitter. I wonder if people, we just finished our fourth weekend without sports. Fourth, all right? It's been a month. It seems like it's a lot longer, but it's been four consecutive weekends without sports. You know, four consecutive weeks without sports. No baseball, no NBA, no hockey. The hockey playoffs would have been uh, starting this week. Um, uh, by the way, the regular season would have ended over the weekend and the playoffs would have been starting this week. And we didn't get March Madness, which was a big one, you know, for a lot of people. Um, I'm wondering, is there any chance that some of you out there have figured out over these last four weekends that you don't need sports as much as you thought you needed them? Uh, You know, I'll be honest with you. I miss March Madness terribly. I really wanted to watch Maryland continue their season, to see Anthony Cowan play more games, to see Stick Smith play more games, to see Maryland make a run. But, you know, I'm not, like, dying over, you know, sports not being on every night. You know, I don't watch a lot of baseball this time of year anyway. I'm not a big regular season NBA, you know, every single night. I love the playoffs. I love the I love the hockey playoffs. But I... I took calls on this, Tommy. There were a lot of people that said, you know, I'm doing other things. And I'm getting some things done. And, man, you know, one of the things you realize is that watching sports and following sports is incredibly time-consuming. It's really time-consuming. But, again, I mean, we've always said, at least I've always said. Well, you're not as much of of a game watcher every night like a lot of people are. No, but uh, one of the things about sports, is you can invest your time, emotion, and energy in it, and in the end realize it really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Well, we know that well, but anyway. That's one of the, that, but that's one of the pleasures of it. So when it's gone, of course you're going to come to the conclusion that, hey, it's not that important. I mean, if, if, if you already know that and, and invest your, your emotion into it, uh, because that, you know, you can exercise all those emotions without costing you anything. Yeah, but see, people, Tommy, a lot of people are just learning that for the first time. For a well, lot I've of people, always thought that. Well, I know that, but, and, but and, and I understand that too. I understand, you know, where sports sort of ranks in the hierarchy of of important things. A lot of people don't know that, and maybe they're just starting to figure it out. Like, man, you know, I. I would have been watching a game and we did this with the family or whatever it is, or I'm working on the house or I'm reading this book or I'm, you know, uh, online, I'm teaching myself a new language. I read somebody is doing that recently. Um, And I wonder whether or not this pandemic, which of course is, you know, 
nobody's fault unless you want to trace it back to the origin of this thing and fault the Chinese for it, which you know you can legitimately do. But what I'm saying is it's not the fault of these sports leagues or these players, but you know, some people are realizing now they don't need the NBA or the or Major League Baseball or or hockey or or even the bat the March Madness. Now you want it, but you may start consuming things a little bit differently when they do return. Now I, I I I offer up one exception to this uh, to this notion, and that is, if this were happening during the fall and football season, I would feel it. Not you know having Sunday one o'clock games, football to follow, football to look forward to on the weekend. There is a scheduled rhythmic nature to football season that has been so habit forming that it would be a much more difficult habit to break. Initially, if this had happened then, yeah. But, like, if, if we get to September, you'll have, and there's no football... We're going to be used you'll to have it? All, you'll, you'll have already been programmed. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, and it, it, I mean, you'll have already been trained to live without sports. Now, football's a different animal. I'll grant you that. It's, it's a national religion. But uh, it, the impact won't be as bad... As if this happened right in the beginning of football season. I don't know. There'd be far more with. Oh, I, no doubt if it had happened right at the beginning. But I, I think if we get there and we haven't had sports, and you know the golf majors are rescheduling right now, they're putting together a new schedule for the Kevin, fall. Kevin, nobody watches golf. I'm talking about from my personal perspective. I love okay. watching golf. And what okay. I'm saying is that they're putting all that stuff together, and I'm looking forward to that. But even if those weren't played. Um, if those were played and football wasn't, I would still. I need. I need football. I need that. That fall of getting excited about football season. You know, leading into cooler weather and leaves changing and Halloween and then holidays. And football is always a part of all of that. You know, it's really. It's really. I know there are some people out there, but those people aren't listening to this podcast, so we don't really have to speak to them. But there are some people that have no idea that football's going on on Thanksgiving Day or on, you know, during the holidays. But for most of us, it's sort of become part of that whole portion of the calendar. I don't. That, that's going to be a tough one. I mean, hell, I remember when I was much younger how I felt in 1982 when there was no NFL for seven consecutive weeks. That was painful. But at least there was college football on Saturdays. You know, if you've got no football, you know, starting in September, that is going to be – that's that that's a tough one. The rest of this, I think people are realizing, you know, I can live with – some. a lot of you can't. A lot of you are really upset that you can't watch the, you know, Major League Baseball. And I really miss the tournament. But ultimately we got through it. But you're right. There are segments of the population that you are very familiar with that I'm probably having a very difficult time living without it. Yeah, there some some of them. I, I think it's also an age thing and a family dynamic situation. Like you know, there people that you know people that are alone. Okay, who who are big sports fans, and this is what their life really revolves around. It's got to be a struggle right now. Yeah, um, I think alone has to be a struggle, no matter what. True, true. Yeah. All right, um, some Redskins stuff uh, before we go for the day. 
Uh, you wanted to weigh in on what Cooley and I talked about for a big portion of the show on Friday, which is the D'Angelo Hall comments on the NFL Network about Dwayne Haskins, where he was critical of Dwayne Haskins, and he essentially concluded you know, his statement with um, uh, his comments with, I think it's going to be really hard for Dwayne Haskins to be the starter uh, next year with Kyle Allen there breathing down his neck. What did you think? Well, a couple of things. First of all, is D'Angelo Hall is not on the Snyder payroll at all, is he? No. Okay. Uh, you not think that, that I know of. To, you think that has something to do with it? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, my second question is, I don't think I don't think he's right. I think Haskins will be the starter, but uh, I know that some people thought, well, this would be a disaster if this happened. And I said just the opposite. Are you kidding me? If you're a Redskins fan, this is the greatest news you could ever hear. The absolute greatest news. If Kyle Allen is the starter over Dwayne Haskins in the 2020 season, then that means the Wicked Witch, if not dead, is at least locked up. Well, that means that certainly mean that, yeah. is, is not influencing that quarterback decision. And I can't think of any single thing that would be more important to the organization, to the fans of this organization than a clear signal that Dan, that Dan Snyder is not in charge of, of, of those kind of decisions anymore. No matter how many times people say, oh, he's not as involved, not as influential, uh, you know, that right there, that's the canary in the coal mine. If Kyle Allen is your starter, then, then Dan Snyder is on his yacht, and he's not at Redskins Park. Well, you could have, that, you could have that moment in two and a half weeks if they were to draft two at number two overall. You would have the same reaction. But I don't but I don't. Yes, I, I do. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think, it's, I think it's more likely that Kyle Allen would, would start, but I still don't think it's likely. I think that, again, I haven't, I'm not changing my position. Dwayne Haskins is going to be the starter uh, if and when they take the field again uh, in, in, in an NFL game. You know, um, I, I think that personally, uh, I, I think D'Angelo Hall is going to be wrong. I think he's going to be the starting quarterback. Dwayne Haskins is going to be the starting quarterback. I, you know, we, I hold out the one exception, and that is NFL season, training camp, everything gets messed up. You've got one week, and you've got to be ready to play a game, and you know, Kyle Allen's the only guy that really knows the offense and maybe starts the opener. I don't know. I doubt that that's even going to happen. Um, but I think Dwayne Haskins is going, to be, is going to be the starting quarterback. I mean, I think that for a number of reasons. First of all, I think he's better. I think he's more talented, even though I really like Kyle Allen. Cooley doesn't. I actually really think Kyle Allen can be a starting quarterback in the NFL. But I think Dwayne is, is more talented, and I think Dwayne – improved and I think I just I'm looking forward to seeing what Dwayne Haskins can do next year but the number one reason I feel that way is I just don't think that Ron Rivera would be the head coach of the Washington Redskins if there was a the the possibility that Dwayne Haskins wasn't going to be the starting quarterback in 2020 now I'm not saying that you know Rivera took the job 
um, and did what Gruden did, which is convince Dan that he could make something out of RG3. And Rivera said, you know, I'm going to tell him what he wants to hear until I get the job because I think Rivera would have had another job opportunity. I don't think Rivera needed to do that to get a job. I think Gruden I did. Agree. So I think Rivera legitimately, and he said this, we had him as a first-round uh, guy at Carolina. I think he legitimately believes that Haskins can be the guy and he's going to give him the opportunity. And I think that's what he told Snyder is that I like Dwayne too. We liked him coming out. We had a first-round grade on him. I don't think you overdrafted him. And I'm going to give him every opportunity to, to be the quarterback here for the next 10 years. Now, you know, maybe he, he stopped short of guaranteeing it, but I think he got Snyder comfortable that he believes in Haskins, and I think that's why he has the job. I think that's why he was let's offered not, the job and why he has the job. But, let's not get nuts here, okay? I, I, I don't think he would say, I don't think you overdrafted him. The Redskins personnel people thought they overdrafted him. I know. But let me let me just throw something else out. You know, the, the, what would be really like the, the next coach that runs into problems with Snyder needs to be really open in the moment. Now, you know, they risk getting fired, but, you know, I would imagine Rivera's deal is guaranteed. I can't imagine you're coming into this deal without it guaranteed. I mean, Gruden's deal was guaranteed. So, you know, Rivera now, it's a, we're in a different time with the Redskins. If, if, if Rivera decided going through training camp, my God, I mean, Dwayne isn't even what I thought he was, and Kyle gives us a much better chance. I don't see Dwayne being a starting quarterback in this league. I'm starting Kyle Allen. And he goes to Snyder and says, I'm sorry about this, but this is what gives you and me and, and the organization the best chance to win. And if Snyder st- you know, starts to push back, um, you know, Rivera should just go public with it. Because in this environment, if he went public with, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm starting Kyle Allen, the owner's not happy with me at all. He, he, he's really, really pissed off at me. But we are starting Kyle Allen. And if something happens to me, you know why. You know, he could put Snyder into a position, you know, at this stage where he couldn't do anything about it. Think about that. Could Snyder, if Rivera came out and said that, do you think Snyder could actually fire him? I mean, there aren't many fans left, but whatever is left would be gone. No, I think he could. I think he could. I think, look, I think there'd be a lot of Dwayne Haskins fans who would want to see Rivera fired. Uh, I think he could. Yeah, maybe, but not not if it was put in terms of you know this is what the owner is pushing. Let me just also listen. You had you had with Shanahan politically, he thought he could handle Snyder. Gruden, I think part of the uh, public comments about RG three in his first year was his pushback. Uh, yeah, his version of fighting back uh, against the owner, but it was it was. Uh, it didn't go far enough, actually, and it was it was scattershot. Uh, I think what you say, particularly with a coach like Rivera with his credentials, the possibility is there it could work. But I don't I don't believe that it it it, it immunizes you from getting fired by Dan Snyder. So I had Sean Springs on the radio show yesterday. Most of you know this for those that don't. Sean's been a mentor to Dwayne Haskins since he was a young kid, like 12 years old. He's very much in the inner circle, um, friends with the family. Um, and, you know, I asked Sean about what D'Angelo Hall said, and you know, he disagreed with some of it. But he, he said, he said, look, I'm, 
I'm very honest and direct with Dwayne in my conversations with him. And I've told him if he doesn't show up and he doesn't work his ass off, he hasn't seen anything yet because if he's not good and the team isn't good, wait till he gets a load of the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes conversation. <laughs> you know, that's when really, you know, the pressure will come. And and I, I was thinking about it because he said a couple of other things in the interview that that spoke to you know, at least based on his perspective, um, about how, you know, he's not a sycophant of Dwayne's. He's not there to tell him how great he is all the time. And I thought about what, you know, how important that would be. And I have heard from the jump from people, you know, in the know that, that Dwayne's much different than RG3. You know, they may both be sensitive to criticism and too much on social media, et cetera, the whole thing, but that Dwayne was not entitled. Dwayne isn't the guy that's going to, you know, um, essentially, you know, be, be, I guess, grab on to the and and really embrace being the owner's favorite toy. Um, That's what I've heard from the beginning time. You can choose to believe it or not. We know this, right? We know that Robert Griffin III was a guy that came in and had a group of people around him, including family, that convinced him it was never his fault. None of it was his fault. He was surrounded by people that told him he walked on water, and that group grew to include Dan Snyder when the Redskins drafted him. And it became a challenge for coaches and teammates here in Washington. He was anointed, he was enabled, and he could do no wrong in the owner's eyes. And that became a major problem, not to mention the father's access to the locker room, the father's access to Snyder, the father you know, trying to push Shanahan out and trying to get Art Bryles hired, the father trying to tell Snyder that he shouldn't be anything but a drop-back quarterback. We know all of that turned out, you know, turned out to be awful because players and coaches um, they they just they were turned off by the whole thing. I have heard since the jump that's not Dwayne and that's not Dwayne's inner circle. I hope that's true, but Sean Springs would be an indication of I think a guy that's not going to be you know telling a guy like Haskins you know go straight to the owner you know forget your coaches go straight to the owner. I don't think that's happening. What number is Dwayne Haskins again? <laughs> uh, what number is he? Yeah, he's number seven. Could you tell me what? Oh, okay. Is that an important number? I'm not. I'm not familiar with. And it. I know that that wasn't. Yeah, it I'm, was I'm an important familiar. number. It wasn't Bobby. Okay. It wasn't Bobby Mitchell's number. It wasn't a Hall no, of Famer's number. No, no, it wasn't. <clears throat> um, nope. I don't know. Okay. I'm I'm optimistic about Haskins. I, I hope they get a real training camp. I hope they get him ready to play. I want to see him start 16 games this year, and I think it'll happen. Um, last thing, Redskins related. So the NFL and the Hall of Fame, they actually put together um, together an all-decade team, and the 2010s all-decade team came out, not one Redskin on it. That's the second straight decade of no Redskins being on the all-decade team. And just so you know, like there are – Two quarterbacks, four running backs, four wide receivers. There, there are four offensive tackles, you know, uh, on the list. And, and Trent Williams wasn't one of them. Jason Peters, uh, Tyron Smith, Joe Staley, Joe Thomas, all ahead of uh, of Trent Williams. No Ryan Kerrigan on the linebackers. Chandler Jones, Luke Keekley, K- Khalil Mack, Von Miller, Bobby Wagner, Patrick Wilson, Will, uh, Willis. It's not like there's just one spot, but two straight decades of the Snyder era, and not one. Redskin all-decade player. 
Not a surprise. Nope. Not a surprise in the least. I mean, the, <laughs> the lack of tax. You have to work hard. Well, no, I can't say that because there's other franchises that are even worse, probably. But, uh, I mean, it really seems like you'd have to work hard to be this talentless for two decades. In the 80s, the Redskins had six players on the all-decade team for the 80s. You know, um, let me just mention this to you. So I'll I'll tell you who the six were, but then something that was surprising. So the six in the 1980s were Russ Grimm, Joe Jacoby, uh, John Riggins, Dave Butts was an all-decade performer, Um, Mike Nelms was an all-decade performer, and who am I forgetting? I'm forgetting somebody. Riggo? Oh, Art Monk. Art Monk was number six. So it was Grimm, Jacoby, Monk, Riggins, Butts, Mike Nelms, all on the 1980s all-decade team. You know who the coaches were in the 1980s all-decade team? Bill Walsh. Wow. Yeah. And Chuck Knoll. Joe Gibbs. Now, the only thing I can think of is that they had to have one AFC and one NFC coach on the all-decade team, but Chuck Knoll did not win. He he won the 1980 Super Bowl. It was the 79 season. It didn't even did did not get to one Super Bowl in the 80s as the coach of the Steelers. Joe Gibbs went to three of them in the 1980s. All right, and won uh, and won two of them. So obviously, Joe Gibbs in the 1980s was a better coach than Chuck Knoll, who was a great coach. But his his damage came in the 1970s when the Steelers were the team of the 70s. Uh, I'm assuming that they had to have an AFC coach and an NFC coach on there for some reason. I guess, I guess so. I mean, but look, people who know, like Kirk Cousins said, people who know know <laughs> yeah. when it comes to Joe Gibbs. I love when you quote Kirk. You sound so <laughs> smart when you quote uh, Kirk Cousins. Um, all right, uh, what else you got? You got anything else? That's it, boss. That's it for me too. Um, we're done. Oh, you you mentioned to me thirty three year anniversary of of Hagler Leonard um, was what yesterday? Yesterday, yeah. Uh, I watched that close circuit at Cole Fieldhouse. Uh huh. And I still to this day believe that Marvin Hagler won that fight. Well, you know, you go and you read the uh, the scorecards of the media who covered it, and it was like almost divided down the middle. There were a lot of people, who, a lot of writers, who had Leonard winning that fight. Yeah. Uh, so it, it and was a lot, and a lot of them had Hagler winning the fight. Yeah. It, like here's what I always said. Who were you writing for at the time? I, I wasn't covering. Sports oh, you weren't covering then. sports. I was a yeah, of course. Reporter, yeah, 1980 uh, for the Baltimore yeah. Sun. But uh, I've had a lot of conversations with Ray over the years about it. Marvin Hagler was one of the most fearsome fighters of his era. He was a middleweight, so Ray was moving up to fight a, a guy heavier than him. Right. Ray hadn't fought in, what, three years, okay? And you can't knock that guy out. You can't, not, you can't take the decision away from the judges. If you can't do that, then you don't deserve to win. Well, that's ridiculous. 
That's that. Well, he wanted. You're fighting a guy who hasn't who, fought. Who three cares? Years. You're the fighting the same guy. rules. If you win a decision, if you outpoint the guy over 15 rounds in the fight, actually, that was a, a, one of the first. I may be wrong about this. Wasn't this one of the first going from 15 to 12 round championship fights? Am I right about that, or was this a 15 round well, fight? No, no, it was a 12 rounder because yeah. Ray wanted it to be a 12 round. Okay, so the, but, the, but most championship fights in the 80s were still 15 round fights. Yeah, yeah, it was the Ray Mancini and Duke Kim that, yeah. that changed uh, changed a lot of that. Right. But yeah, one of the things that Ray said was. Uh, Twelve rounds and a and a, a a a bigger ring to to be able to move around in. I'm sorry, you hear in boxing all the time. You got to take the title from the champ, you know. So it's not it's not just uh, you know well, what happened. Leonard on the Leonard was sort of a stuff. champ too. I mean, no. My point my point is it shouldn't have been that close. No. And if you lose a close fight like that to Ray Leonard, you've got only yourself to blame. Um, it was a great fight. It really was a great fight. And the thing that I remember the most about that fight was what Leonard did at the end of each round. Like he could be dominated for the first two and a half minutes of the round, but he would get to the, like the final 15 seconds of each round and he would just start throwing flurries, you know, and it, he looked super busy and looked like he was dominating at the end of each round. And I think it was very influential in sort of the voting, you know, round by round back then. Do you, do you remember that? Am I right about that or yeah, not? No, you're, ab- you're absolutely right about that. And I'm sure it was influential. What I remember about that was uh, my favorite fighter of all time, Roberto Duran, had fought Hagler uh, not uh, a little bit earlier uh, in, in, in the scheme of things, and uh, fought Hagler really tough. I mean, really gave Hagler a very tough fight. And Ray Leonard was doing the commentary, and Duran, uh, you know, uh, came to the ropes at the end of the fight and said to Ray, "You can beat this guy." Duran said that. Yes. <laughs> wow. I've never heard that story before. Yeah. You um, can beat this guy. And then uh, Hagler fought John McGobby. Oh, the beast. The beast. Yeah, and, and, and really did not look that good, which was really what convinced Ray to, to go ahead and take the fight. He um, thought he was catching Hagler, you know, basically at, on, on the downside. Well, he may have been, and Hagler never got over it. He retired after that fight. That was it. That no, was the he, li- he wanted a rematch, and <clears throat> Ray didn't give him the rematch right away. And then he retired. Then Ray wanted the rematch years later, and Hagler wanted no part of it. Yeah, I th- Hagler like moved to Italy and and ended up uh, living there. I think maybe the rest of his life. I don't. I don't know. I mean, God, how old is is Marvin Hagler now? He's probably thirty five during that fight, something like that. So he's got to be in his mid sixties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know the, the you know how how the Duran fight. I saw. I, I certainly remember the Duran fight, and I remember it was not the most exciting of fights between Hagler and Duran. Of course, the greatest three rounds in in consecutive three rounds, I think, in the history of the sport was his fight against Hearns. 
It's yeah. it's the best three round, you know, physical war I've ever watched. And those that haven't watched it, just YouTube Hearns Hagler and just watch this thing. It only takes you, you know, it's it's a total of about twelve minutes. You know, the minute in between rounds because it only went three rounds, but that was unbelievable. And I always was sort of a Hearns fan, and I liked Hagler too. I always gave Hearns a lot of credit for just – he went for it, man. He he came out and he decided his only chance was to catch Hagler with one of those big right-hand Tommy Hearns you know, punches, and he went for it, and it just didn't work. It almost no. worked, but it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're YouTube and fights and you want to watch a great fight, and I've talked about this before, uh, it wasn't even a title fight. It was a heavyweight fight between George Foreman and Ron Lyle. I think it went five rounds. Go go on YouTube and watch that. Was, then, was Foreman the champ? Able... Was this after he'd beaten no, Fraser? No, no. no, this was not when he was a champ. Uh, there was no title at stake. But uh, it's must-watch. Foreman Lyle. I don't think I, I I don't remember that one. I mean, I remember that. You gotta watch. The, obviously, I remember Foreman, and I remember Ron Lyle because didn't didn't Ali beat Ron Lyle too? Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, I'll go back and and, and look for that. Uh, yeah. here here it is, January twenty fourth, nineteen seventy six. In fact, Tommy, it was the fight before he won the title. Uh, by knocking out Frazier. Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. No, no. He down won that Frazier. fight. He beat Frazier in 73. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. This was a rematch with yeah. Frazier. Yes. Rematch with yes. Frazier. And he, he yes. knocked Frazier out in the fifth round of this fifth fight. Round. The first fight yes. with Frazier was in Jamaica um, yes. in 1973. Yeah, you got the – yeah. That's the down yes. goes Frazier Cosell famous call. Yes, yes it is. <clears throat> All right. Uh, anything else? That's it, buddy. Glad you're healthy. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Back tomorrow.